If you're here today and you're married and you're going through a really tough time, you're going to find it hard. Okay? If you're here today and you're married, and it's not just that you're going through a tough time, your marriage is just tough. You're going to find it hard. Okay? So we want to just make, we're aware of that. Um, and so we just want to let you know, uh, in terms of, you know, the pastor's here, um, we're, we're available. You want to just talk things out a bit afterwards or whatever, we're totally available for you. Um, but I do want to say this, I, I, I think one of, the, one of the biggest difficulties we all fall into as people is the grass is greener on the other side. Mentality, it's huge. It's massive. In my experience of fields, and there's not a lot, but in my experience of fields, it seems to me that the grass is always just as patchy on the other side when I get there. Have you noticed that? Literally, like in a literal, not just like illustration, you, get, you think, oh, it's a bit patchy, you think, it's much better over there. You walk over, you're like, what happened? In the, I walk, in the 20 seconds of to walk here, this grass has become patchy. It always looks greener than it is. And I do want to say, just exercise wisdom as you hear, as I wax lyrical on the glories of the unmarried life today, just exercise wisdom and don't fall into strange, uh, nostalgic, idealistic things. Okay? And if you can have as a, a, a catchphrase, maybe for your life, or particularly for this series, the grass is just as patchy on the other side, that will really help you. Okay? Just to sort of keep, keep, keep your heart, yeah, until we get to glory, of course. Yeah. So just to keep our feet on the ground in that. Um, Okay, so, so, so we're talking about the unmarried life for the next, uh, next little while. Um, it, it's, it, to, to be celibate is viewed as, is viewed as very bizarre. Um, I, guess, I guess for... There's lots of reasons, there's lots of reasons to it. But, it's the, but it, even today... Well, today to not have a, to not have a, a, a long-term partner, you're viewed uh, as strange, particularly in certain parts of the world. But even in the West, I was read, reading uh, on the internet the other day that uh, an Indian woman wrote an article about singleness and the stigmas around it. And there was a surprising response by those who read it, not just from people of her subculture, but uh, people in the West as well. And there's a couple of... Um, a couple of of little uh, um, biographies of, uh, the, of women, particularly, that read it and really agreed. This was a, the article was about being single as a woman. Uh, this woman called Stephanie from New York says, I was born in the US and I still have to face the same issue with being a single independent woman. Now, she's from a Chinese background, which does change it somewhat. But she says this, um, my mum ha- had me when she was 19, I'm now 26, I'm already facing the you're too old now lines thrown at me. They still follow the lunar calendar, so I'm actually considered 28. Recently I was forced to go on a date, which means dinner with both families in an awkward environment. When my aunt asked me later why I didn't like him, she said, you said you wanted a guy that lives in Manhattan, and he lives in Manhattan. I tried to explain that just because someone lives in Manhattan, it doesn't mean I'll marry him. But he likes to eat and travel like you. Oh really, you mean like all of my friends and maybe the rest of the planet. I'd rather be single than be with someone I'm not compatible with. My family knows this and they'll keep asking me to go on dates. I go, but when I say no, it means no and they understand that. Someone else said, New Jersey, sorry, Jersey City. I was caught off guard by this article because it's not an issue only in India. As a 28-year-old woman in America, I get insensitive and horrific comments constantly. Many times, people assume it's just from older family members who are old-fashioned, but that can't be further from the truth. From jokes of when I'm going to become a lesbian, to friends insisting on setting me up on blind dates, and comments such as, if you start wearing more makeup and sexier clothes, someone will like you, it's hard not to blame the media. Shows like The Bachelor praise the ring rather than the relationship. The paragraph where she where she wrote that people tell her parents that if she weren't as educated, she'd be married, happens here too. I have a master's degree from a prestigious school, yet people here advise I shouldn't tell guys in case I intimidate them. In general, I feel incredibly invalidated by my career and educational ambitions because this is still a society where a woman's worth are more based on whose elbow she clings to. I've had a friend tell me she doesn't get it. I'm pretty smart and funny. Have I tried just acting dumber? Maybe I would find someone if I just didn't act like me. Like I've said before, it's all about chasing the ring for some instead of a healthy relationship. I just it's quite interesting in terms of hearing what people are saying about um, this particular thing. We probably shouldn't be surprised that you're viewed as a bit odd if you're celibate in society at large because of the mass sexualisation of society. You know, to, to opt for a celibate life until you're married, we probably as Christians shouldn't be surprised if that's viewed as strange. But it's often viewed as strange in the church. We probably do need to just stop for a moment and ask, well, why is that the case? Um, why is it the case that very often in church life, people who aren't married are kind of viewed as if they're in a limbo phase, and they're not 
you know, they're not in, in the condition or the state that they will remain in fruitfully. Um, I think his, his, there's a reason why it's historical. Um, I, won't, I won't go into huge depth in terms of church history, but I think it's important that you realise that um, from the earliest years, days of Christianity, um, there were many, many, many uh, uh, celibate, unmarried Christians, uh, fruitful, happy, it's very, very common. Um, and even monasteries, convents, etc., etc., that, 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 that was explosive around the world for years. Uh, and uh, some, some of it was built on some good things, some of it was built on some not so good teaching about sex as being dirty and not, and it's more holy to be unmarried and celibate than it is to be married. These were some of the things that, that, that the Roman Catholic Church for a while was kind of some of the, there was some there was some teaching around that kind of idea, um, which is why even now to be a Catholic priest you have to remain single and celibate. There's this idea that it's somehow more holy. Um, then you get to around the 1500s and what we call the Reformation when a man called Martin Luther um, reacted negatively to 95 uh, particular uh, doctrines or ways of the Catholic Church and um, he he really took the thing in a completely different direction he ended up himself as a monk marrying a nun that he'd rescued from a convent you know really extreme the other way and, and, and like, like what happens a lot of the time when there's a reaction to something in the short term it causes great relief because this really cranky idea it feels like it's being straightened out but with most reactions what happens over time is that it then just keeps going <laughs> until suddenly you end up with another extreme and I think that's what's happened in the church to be honest, I think now what's held up is marriage as the ideal, and I don't think it's biblical. I'm going to show you why from Scripture as we look at as we look at it today. But I think that's what's happened historically, and I think it's why sometimes in church life um, uh, singleness, when, when when people do a singles night, it's always about how to find a partner. For example, that's that's been driven out of that out of that sort of philosophy. Or, or, or if single people feel in, in church life that somehow they're just not quite complete or, or perceived in a strange way, it's just driven out of that philosophy. We want to knock it on the head at Revelation. So it's not part of our culture, because it's not kingdom culture by any means. Amen? You'll be saying amen in half an hour. Right, okay. So... I want to just just track quickly a uh, quick sort of brief a brief survey of human history uh, um, over a few millennia, if you'll bear with me. Um, so before Adam and Eve ate the fruit, God instituted marriage as a good thing. He makes Adam and says, "Not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper a fit for him, one who will be a complementary fit. They'll they'll fit together in every way. Uh, they're not exactly the same, but together they can, in a full way, male and female, in a beautiful way, reflect the image of God. And so God institutes marriage. It's before sin comes into the world, and it's a beautiful thing, and it's to the glory of God. And it, it, that's where we get our core understanding that marriage is good, sexual intimacy is good, male and female is good. It's it's all rooted back there in the creation narrative. Then we have the sin, the moment that we call the fall, when they uh, ate the forbidden fruit, when they crossed the line, the one prohibition that God gave them, do what you like, just don't eat from that tree, they ate from that tree, and as a result there's this judgment, if you like, that God brings. And part of the judgment is particularly around their relationship. He says that um, she's gonna, her desire will be for him, but it's, uh, from the reading I've done, I read that word desire as a negative word, it's a desire to master um, but he will rule over you which is also a negative thing a dominance through the, through the fallen sin of the judgment that God brings into the relationship there's now a tension there's power power play there's jostling for position there's difficulty hostility much much vulnerability in the male female relationship heightened in something as intimate as marriage which is why we see a lot of devastation around us Today, uh, in marriages, when a man and a woman get together, it's, it's, it can be a bit of a mind, a minefield. So we go from what, from before the fruit, we call it the probationary state, if you like, of human beings. They were on probation. They were, um, they hadn't sinned, but they weren't glorified. They weren't in the same position that we will be in the end. But there is like a period, if you like, of, of testing. Then we've got the fallen state of humanity, where marriage is still good, intimacy, uh, sexual intimacy, companionship, still great things, part of God's creation but very, very, uh, lots can go wrong. Uh, and, then, and then we have the final state of humanity for those who have trusted in Christ, trusted in God's plan of salvation, Jesus Christ, will be glorified. 
And um, what is that condition? Well, Jesus makes clear what that condition is when he was approached by some Sadducees. So if we could just see the first slide, please, Rach. Uh, the same day, Sadducees came to Jesus who say there's no resurrection. So they believe there's no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for, for his brother. That's true. That was part of the Old Testament law. It was an honourable thing to do, that you would marry your brother's widow in order that she, you could have children with her in order that she would have someone to carry on uh, her, 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 her husband's name and would be able to provide. And, and it, it, was a, it was a beautiful thing. I think it's called leveret marriage. So they were referring to that. And then they say, Now there were seven brothers among us the first married and died and having no offspring left his wife to his brother so to the second and third down to the seventh an unlucky bunch after them all the woman died in the resurrection right so don't believe in it in the resurrection therefore of the seven whose wife will she be they're trying to trick him for they all had her Jesus answered them you're wrong because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. The final state of humanity will be unmarried. Not just people who are unmarried when they go to glory won't get married, but clearly from this illustration here, those who were married will no longer be married. Right, sister? <laughs> you see, Davina is eternally my sister in Christ. In this age, she will permanently be my wife. In glory, it's hi sis, how's it going? <laughs> I don't know what it's going to be like. But this is, this is clear teaching from Christ. Now what this does, is that it brings massive dignity to the unmarried state. Massive dignity. If this is God's ultimate purpose for human beings, that's huge. We need to understand that, not despise that or dismiss that or just sweep that one to the side. That's a really big deal. That's a very, very big deal. And we'll look at why that is the case later, but it's the case. So there's the survey of human history. And uh, as those of us now that are believers, we, we, we're in this strange position where we kind of live in what theologians call the in-between-the-ages, because... In Jesus Christ came the kingdom of God, which is like the kingdom of God, if you can imagine it, it's like, it's like the, the, next, the, the age to come. It's the next age where, where Jesus' rule is perfectly, perfectly received. Um, so Jesus came, he said, the kingdom has come. And that's he's constantly what he preached as he healed the sick and um, raised the dead and preached good news. He, he constantly said, the kingdom is here. Because with Jesus comes the kingdom, because he's the king. But of course, you see, after Jesus rose from the dead, he went back to be with the Father until he returns again, which means, oh, okay, so when Jesus returns, the kingdom's going to fully come, but the kingdom has come in Jesus, and so we kind of live in between the ages now. For those of us that know Jesus, the kingdom's come, but not fully. But because of that, it means that both lifestyles, married and unmarried, are perfectly appropriate. It's totally appropriate to be both. To say one is better than the other, I don't think you can. But there were good things. Real wonderful, glorious things about both. And there are painful and difficult things about both. We're obviously focusing on the great things about the unmarried life today. And I, wanna, I want us to look at some other conversations in the Bible which will help us to get into this a bit and, 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 and dig into this. The fact that the kingdom has come, even though it hasn't fully come yet, means that the Bible uses very urgent, climactic language about the age we live in. It says, the end of the ages has come upon you. This was written 2,000 years ago. What does that mean for us 2,000 years later? We live in this epoch, this age, where the end, the end of all things is near. And I know we often associate that with the, you know, the guy with the sandwich board walking up and down the street, you know, and it can all seem a bit odd and, and out there. But actually, biblically, it's true. We're in, we're in, from the time of Christ through to his return, his first coming and his second coming, we're in the final, these are the last days. These are the last days and there's a, there's a certain urgency and a sense of a, a climax about this which we need to take really seriously. Otherwise we'll miss the flavour of true New Testament Christianity. We'll, become, we'll fall into a bit of a stupor. We'll fall asleep spiritually. We'll just kind of plod along. We won't catch it. And it's really important that we catch it in our spirit. It's very, very important. 
look at something that Jesus... Jesus gave some really strong teaching on marriage and divorce, and that's a whole different sermon. But anyway, he gave some teaching on marriage and divorce uh, in Matthew 19. And this is what happened. It says, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. As disciples just say what they think. They, I love them. And Jesus said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. They're just born that way. It happens sometimes. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. Obviously, you know, you read about um, certain situations in those days, particularly in the culture of those days, you know, the king would have his uh, harem would be looked after by eunuchs, because obviously the eunuch wasn't dangerous. Uh, And so sometimes that would be something performed by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Now, this doesn't mean that you operate on yourself. It's not a physical thing, okay? It's been done. People have done this. So, one guy got a couple of bricks. Seriously. Church history has some very extreme examples. Alright? It's not what Jesus means. He means there are those who, in a spiritual sense, say that, you know, for the sake of the kingdom, I'm going to live sexually celibate. Jesus says it. There were some that would do that. Totally appropriate. It's not weird. It's not odd. It's not strange. It's not, well, what's wrong with them? No. It's for the kingdom. Jesus is saying this. There are some that will. And we need to respect that and give, give, let that affect the way that we think about these things. Paul was definitely single. We're not sure whether he was always single or whether his wife left him as a result of him becoming a Christian. We don't know. But we know that when he, the Apostle Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, we know that he, um, he lived a single life. And um, definitely from the point of, of him becoming a Christian. And he talks about it in the, in, the, in the book called 1 Corinthians in chapter 7. They've asked him some questions about sex and marriage and remarriage and that sort of stuff. So he, he tries to answer their questions. So I've just pulled out a few passages from there to show you what Paul says about it. So in this section he says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Right? So either Paul is saying that or it's in quotes because they said that to him in a letter. The translators decide what they think. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. To the unmarried and the the widows, I say it's good for them to remain single as I am. If they can't exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now some people, just quickly, some people have taken the last sentence and built their whole marriage philosophy on it. Right? This is part of, it's part of the conversation. If this is the only reason that you get married, there's a problem, okay? Just, it's in there, but you can't, it's part of a whole conversation, alright? So Paul points to two things. In this passage here, he talks about celibacy as a gift. That's what he says, he talks about it in that, as a spiritual gift, he talks about it in that way. So think about the spiritual gift that you think you may have from the Holy Spirit, whether that's prophecy, uh, or whether it's speak, praying in in unknown languages, or healing, whatever it it might be, think about it. What what is it like to have that gift? It feels kind of very natural, you feel like you're flowing it, uh, and to you it's a joy. And so I think the implications are that if if you have the gift of celibacy, that there's a sense in which it kind of feels... You know, it doesn't, doesn't feel like you're constantly going against the grain. There's a naturalness about it. Um, there's an ease in it. There's a fruitfulness about it and a joy in it. I think that that is totally appropriate. There's long conversations about, you know, is everyone who is unmarried, do they have that gift for the season that they're unmarried? And da, da, da. I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, Paul refers to it by way of a gift. So there's something in there about that. I'm not going to pretend that I know more than I do. Um, it's in there and it's part of the conversation. Um, the second thing in this chapter here is obviously that the, the sex drive, um, uh, burning with passion, is also part of the conversation. Like I said, if that just dominates the horizon, you've got to, you've got to deal with that first. Because, frankly, if that, is what, if that is the only thing that drives you to be married, your marriage is going to be a disaster. So you, you've got to, you, whether you're married or unmarried, that thing cannot fill the horizon. It's just totally out of proportion. And um, the Lord wants to help you in that, in that way. Okay? And, and, he, and he can and he, and he will if you let him. All right? That it may be a battle. But, it, but it's part of it. Okay? Some find it easier... Uh, to live a life without sexual intimacy than others. Okay, it's part of the conversation. Okay, so throw it into the mix. 
Then there's another passage where he says this, Only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. I don't know how they would, but anyway. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision, for neither circumcision counts or anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Then he talks a bit about marriage uh, marriage and singleness. Then he says, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So another element in the conversation this is Paul saying do you know what when you were called when you became a believer were you married or were you single well just get on with it as you were don't get all worked up about if you you know imagine you were called and you were married um, but maybe your your spouse wasn't called to Christ at the same time that they're not a believer don't get all worked up about it don't try and don't try and separate from them you're in it okay so just just work it out were you single when you were called to Christ? Don't spend your whole life thinking, who am I going to be with? Just get on with following Christ. Don't let, the, don't let that thing dominate the horizon. Again, it's part of the conversation. Okay, it's not the whole thing, but it's a factor that goes into it. And then there's another passage. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Now, what you find in this conversation is Paul's, he's, he's pretty, he's, in some parts of Paul's letters, he's being very strong as if he's saying this thing from the Lord. In this conversation, the tone is different. He's very much saying, this is how I see it. I do have the Holy Spirit and I see it this way. I want to put this on you. I don't want to restrain you. It's just, it's, it's an observation. Here's something I say. It's not really as a command. It's a concession. That's the tone. He's just being very reasonable, talking about these things here. And the point here is there's two main, thi- two main things here. There's this whole idea of cares and distractions. He says, you know what? You get married, you're going to have a whole lot more to worry about. And you will. But that's for another week. That's for the glory of marriage. Um, but that's what he's saying. He's saying, look, if you're, if you're single for the Lord, you won't have that. There's a sense in which you're not carrying around constantly, is my husband okay? Is my wife okay? Are we doing, are we doing good? Are we, are we good? Are we on the right track? You've you not got any of that. You just get on with it. And he says, I think that's a, Paul says, I think that's a really great thing. Paul commends that. He says he thinks, hey, it's unsecu- um, undistracted devotion to the Lord. And he also says, I think you'll be happier. He says, in my judgment, you'll be happier. Now again, I don't think it necessarily means, it's not a blanket universal statement that the single life is happier than the married life. No, it's not that. But it's Paul saying, do you know what? I'm single, I'm really happy. In my judgment, it's better off staying as she is. Paul's happy to say that. And I think it just, it, what it does is it totally destroys that myth, you know, of the sort of, you know, the myth whereby ultimate happiness is found in, in, in marriage. Um, and I think we need to let that myth be destroyed. And I'm all for marriage. Like I say, if you're here for one week, you're going to get something really extreme. Please listen to the next three weeks online, okay? Because it's all going to come together. But I just, I want to bring a strong message each week, just so you, and over the four, you'll get the full, you'll get the full picture. Um, so this is a really important scripture, 1 Corinthians 7, to maybe look at and explore if you're thinking about these things. The reality is this, if you become a believer, Jesus becomes a centre, and everything becomes reformed and reshaped in light of him. I said that the other week, didn't I? Uh, he becomes top of the pile, everything else takes its shape and finds its level under him. He's the Lord, he's preeminent, he's the centre and all of that. Every element of our life orbits around him from now on. And so for, for the unmarried person, it's not about, it can't be rooted or founded in, it ought not to be rooted or founded in fear, fear of the opposite sex, fear of sex, fear of vulnerability. That, that's not... That's not the kind of unmarried life that is being celebrated here. Not at all. Not for a moment. Um, this, is about, this is about saying, how can my life reflect the gospel? Well, in just the, just the same way that the married life reflects the gospel in an incredible way, week four, leave it there, the single life is also a very vivid picture of the gospel and that it speaks on uh, undistracted devotion to Jesus. It's a reflection of, in the same way that Jesus came 
and was not romantically involved. The primary reason Jesus was not romantically involved is because Jesus knows who his wife is, and it's the church. Yeah? Jesus Jesus just totally put all that on hold because he's going for union with his bride in glory. Ultimate glorious union. That's what he's going for. And absolutely gave himself wholeheartedly, fully to his bride as he was crucified. Ephesians 5 puts it like this. When talking to husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He's talking about the cross. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendour, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. He gave himself for her, for us, on the cross. Why? So that, so that through his sacrificial love, a people that are lost in sin and darkness, which we all were, might be made beautiful by his salvation. Isn't it glorious? Uh, those of us that were lost and trapped in the filth of all kinds of different things that we, you know, you know, I haven't got to tell you what you was lost and trapped in, but all that, all the darkness and the nastiness, through the cross, through Jesus' sacrificial love, given Himself, He paid my debt. He cleansed my conscience. He gave me a new heart. It's all a gift, all the grace of God through Jesus giving Himself to me. It's not why, it's not what I've done. It's what He has done, and I've been made brand new through it. And I want to be a shiny part of the bride. The single life can be a wonderful reflection of that. It can be an amazing, amazing statement of, you know what, I just decided that I want my life in a kind of a special kind of way to signpost towards absolute devotion to Christ. I want, to, I want through my choice of just being in this condition to point to that. Now again, like I say, we'll look at how marriage does that in week four, but I want to talk about how singleness does it today. That itself is a, is a wonderful signpost to devotion to Christ and a reflection of Christ's devotion to us. It's beautiful and a wonderful and a glorious, glorious thing. I want to draw some conclusions. Conclusion number one. Jesus was the most full, complete human being to have ever lived. He was unmarried, had a great group of male and female friends. Therefore, a full expression of sexual identity is not dependent on sexual activity. I will say that again. A full expression of sexual identity is not dependent on sexual activity. We've got to get that right into our heart and right into our soul. I am no more a man for not being a virgin than I would be if I was a virgin. I am no more a man for not being a virgin than any man in this room who is a virgin. I am no more a man because of it, in any way. I hope you believe that, because it's true. And we've got to make sure that we avoid the kind of messages behind movies like the 40-year-old virgin and that kind of thing. The whole message is, we've got to deal with this. This is the problem. That's the whole message, isn't it? This is a 40-year-old virgin. Ooh, problem. Hold on. Hold on a minute. I follow a 33-year-old virgin. I give him my life and he is the man of all men. And the captain of the army. And the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. So we've got to understand that's a necessary and vital conclusion that we must embrace and reject all the nonsense messages out there about it. Really, really important. A word to married people in the room. Don't view unmarried people as in an in-between phase. It's dishonouring. Don't look at them that way. That's very, very dishonouring. They may be married one day, they may not. They are fully complete as they are now. As I've said before, when you become married, you make yourself voluntarily incomplete that you might become one complete with that person. But when you are not married, you are completely complete in Christ. Really important you understand that. This is biblical truth. It sets us free. Marriage, your single friends can help you with your marriage. They can help and advise you with your marriage. Why? Because it's not some mysterious formulas that make marriage work. It's godliness that makes marriage work. (laughs) 
it's, there really is no, you don't get some little clever little booklet written in gold ink on it. Oh, oh, right. It's, no, it's godliness. Forgiveness, humility, dying to self, all the stuff you unmarried Christians um, know about and can help us with. That's what makes marriages work. It's just the same stuff. It's just relationships, but a very, very intimate one. Okay, so they blast the unhelpful element of mystery out of it. It's a relationship, but it's a really, really close one. Which means it can be really, really great and really, really gory. Okay. Marriage. Don't view unmarrieds as immature. There may be some unmarried people who are unmarried because they're immature. But there are some married people who are married because they're immature. Yeah? You mustn't do that. Dishonouring. Jesus was very mature. Paul was very mature. Mother Teresa was very mature. Etc, etc. Got to get our heads straight on this. Another necessary conclusion. If you are unmarried, you can run and run and run in a very uncomplicated way. It is an enormous privilege. Hebrews 12 verse 1 says this. Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race set before us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God we've got to throw off two things if we run in the Christian race number one sin which clings so closely but number two every weight there are some things that are just weights but it's not sin but it's just like <sighs> anxieties and distractions and the like sometimes certain anxieties and distractions that accompany marriage if you are unmarried, then you, you don't even have to work out how am I going to, how am I going to, how, how do I, <laughs> I'm worried about my wife, I'm worried about my husband, how do I, what, how do I lay that aside? It's, it's complicated. It's complicated. You don't have that. Praise God. Another con- necessary conclusion, I've only got 25 more. <laughs> Joke. Um, because of the sexualization and insecurity of society at large, okay, because of the sexualization and insecurity of society at large, you being unmarried can be a very powerful witness to those trapped in a need of a, having a certain image. Many out there are in relationship because they cannot handle the stigma of not being in relationship. You can be an incredible witness to that in terms of living free from that. As an unmarried. What a witness that is. You can be a witness to those who are trapped in need of a partner. Some people bounce from one relationship to another because there's no foundation. It's just a scary, dark, hollow thing in the middle and if they're not with someone else, they're freaked out. You can be an amazing witness to what it means to be centred on Jesus. You can be an amazing witness to those trapped in need of constant sexual activity and sexual intimacy. To live in sexual purity... Happy and fruitful for Jesus is an incredible and powerful witness. Finally, when the, pe- when the human beings were first formed, um, they were commissioned to do something. Genesis 1. God blessed Adam and Eve and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every other living thing that moves on the earth. Their commission was to physically multiply and fill the earth. Because at that point, they were... They, were, they hadn't sinned. They carried the glory of God in an uncorrupted way. So if they were to physically multiply, then their offspring would fill the earth and fill the earth with a, God, a reflection of God's uncorrupted glory. Okay? Then through the fall of sin, now when we fill the earth, we, we fill the earth with people who still have something of the image of God, but it's been very corrupted by sin, and so hence we get all, all the madness and the chaos as well. Jesus, before he went back to heaven, gave a fresh commission to the new humanity that are gathered under him. And this is the commission now. Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptise them in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Every believer has this mandate, this commission from God on their life to multiply. Married or unmarried. We're called to reproduce after our kind. Which basically means we tell people about Jesus. Give them the opportunity to respond to him. We don't force or coerce or pressure or lean on people or any of that. Of course we don't. We know that salvation belongs to God. But we talk of Jesus. And we're quick to point people to him. And say, hey look, Jesus is true. He's real. He's the king. He died for you. He loves you. It's so important that we do that. It's a commission on all of us. And it's a commission that those of you 
that are unmarried and, and those of you that will be unmarried until glory, you can participate in absolutely as fruitfully as your uh, married friends. Finally, those of you here that don't know Jesus, you are greatly desired by him. Those of you here that do not know the love of Christ in your heart, you are jealously desired by him. We heard about the love, the great love of God earlier. It's a jealous, burning love. He loves you. It's not some insipid, weak thing. It's burning, jealous love. He's laid down his life for you. And I want to say to you, he invites you to come into his presence and know him. He calls you to leave at the cross, leave at his feet every dark, nasty, twisted thing in your heart. Every perverse, shameful thing you carry in your life. Every vile thing you've done and that's been done to you. He calls you to bring it to the cross where he paid for you and paid your debt. And for you to leave it there. And for you to get out of that driver's seat and get in the passenger seat and say, Jesus, I'm all yours now. Lead the way. He will welcome you. He will fill you with his spirit. He will give you eternal life. Please, please take that seriously. Please respond to him. You haven't got to come through me to do that. The Bible says whoever calls on his name will be saved. Call on his name. Call on his name. Say, Jesus, I want you. I need you. Come into my life. He will hear you. He will do it. He will hear you and he will do it. He promises to. I've got two, two friends with me that I, I don't know any of them, either of them that well, to be honest with you. But I, uh, I trust them. Um, sometimes you just intuitively trust people. Um, both of them are happy, fruitful, unmarried believers that are not part of this church. And I want to just do a quick interview with both of them. And then after that, I'm happy to answer any questions on the sermon. And these guys can answer any questions on their story. Then we're going to break bread, sing a song or two. And, uh, and after that, there's a trip to the pub. And uh, my friends James and Michelle will also be going to the pub if any of you want to just drill deeper and ask any more questions. So first of all, James, can you come up? Give James a warm welcome. Thank you for standing. Now, just to say, James is 33, doesn't look a day over, day over 22. And uh, he's 33, uh, he studies in Oxford. Um, at the moment, he's involved in Emmanuel Church Oxford there. He's also involved with the street community in Oxford. And he's involved in dialogue with the, uh, with the, with the Jewish synagogue. I first met James a few weeks ago. Uh, I noticed um, that he had a, what looked like a winning finger on his right hand. On, on the and I thought, oh, maybe he's married to someone from a different country, or maybe he himself was from a different country, because I know some people from different nations wear winning finger on that hand. Uh, during conversation that I was eavesdropping in on, uh, he mentioned that he wasn't married, so I thought I've got to ask him about the ring. So, James, if you could just start, tell us, tell us, tell us, uh, tell us about the ring, and then tell us about your journey to the ring. Mm. Um, the ring, actually, it was in conversation with uh, David Coke, who leads the church in Emmanuel, uh, Emmanuel Church in Oxford. Um, after I made my decision to be celibate, I was talking with him and saying, I'd really like to get a wedding ring, and I'd like it on that finger, and he said... That, that would be deceptive if you did that. In this country, it would be better to have it on the other, ring, on the other hand. So I thought, well, that's fine. And, um, and uh, it turns out there are people in, on the continent particularly who wear it on this hand, so they often get very confused. But, yeah, uh, my journey, I, when I was a teenager, I, be, uh, before I really discovered romance, uh, I discovered, uh, well, Jesus had captivated my heart, and I just wanted to love him with everything I I am, everything I have. Um, I still have things I'd wrote when I was a teenager, um, uh, coming back to kind of 10, 12, 13, kind of whatever. And, and just uh, and particularly when I was 16, 17, again, he'd, I, I, was, I was just captivated by the Song of Songs when he was speaking the words to me and I was responding. And, and I just knew I wanted to give him everything that I am. Um, but then also when I'm about 17, 18, I started to discover romance, particularly through romantic films. And I, I, just, I just love romance. I, and I still love romance. Um, and, and relationships. And I, and I thought I'd, I'd, love to, I'd love to be married. I, I really want to be married and have, have, have a family. Um, I've, I've always looked after my younger siblings and I've been involved. I've I still help at in crash at church, um, so I love kids, and uh, and I was I was kind of torn between these. Now, uh, so I, I brought it to Jesus, and I said, "Well, how can I love you as much as I want to love you, and love a wife as much as she needs to be loved?" And He said, "Ask me to change your desires." I thought, well, 
I can't ask you to change my desires. They, they are my desires. I want them. I don't. I don't want you to take them away. So kind of, it doesn't make sense. I thought, okay, maybe it's like Abraham. He was told, um, give up your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. And I thought, well, but then that doesn't count because um, Abraham was expecting to get Isaac back from the dead. But if I ask you to take away these desires. Then I won't want them back. I won't want. Well, I won't ask for them again. So that, that doesn't count. Um, and then, then eventually, I was thinking about the Garden of Gethsemane, where where Jesus gave up his closeness with the Father for our sake. And I thought, well, how much easier is it for me to give up closeness with other people for His sake? And I thought, what I can do at least, I can say, not my will, but Yours be done. I don't want this, but you seem to kind of want it, so it's up to you. So I said, not my will, but Yours be done. At that point, and then for about ten years. Uh, from uh, 1999, I suppose, through for the next 10 years, I was interested in one girl after another. Um, and and I, I, I learned in that whole process how to treat girls with respect. Initially, it was more like kind of stalking, uh, in, in a good way. I mean, th- there wasn't Facebook at the time, so I was, it was kind of spiritual stalking, praying for them from a distance and kind of trying to see where they were going and kind of uh, get photos about them, all sorts of stuff. I mean, it, was, it, was, it was really unhelpful. I asked her, her parents whether I could go out with her, and they said, no, she's, she's doing exams. It's probably not the right time for her. And, um, and then I gradually learned how to kind of treat girls with more respect. And um, there was a, 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 the two, the two uh, Valentine's Days before I actually made my decision. Each of them, I, was, I asked out a different girl. And I actually took her flowers and, and wrote a poem. And, and I, I, said, I met up for coffee and said, I'd, um, this is what I, I find attractive about you. I think you're beautiful in this way and the other way. And, and would you pray about it and see if, if, um, is, uh, if you feel the Holy Spirit leading you in that direction? And both times they went away and prayed about it and got back to me saying, thank you so much for you did it. I've never been so respected by anybody, but I don't think it's right. And I'm so grateful to them. I've actually told them, thank you. Thank you very much for, your, for the decision you made. And then in 2009, I was interested in another girl. Um, I'd seen her on her blog, and I, I, I kind of was, uh, thought, no, she has the same interests and whatever. And actually, I was going to a conference two weeks later where I was um, potentially going to meet her. We had a mutual friend, so I thought, oh, I'll get her to introduce us. Maybe we'll at least be friends. And then one morning, my accountability partner at, at church uh, texted me saying, you'll never guess who's in the most recent New Frontiers magazine. I said, oh, congratulations. I didn't know you were writing for it. He said, no, no, it's not me. It's this girl. I said, oh, okay. But I didn't have the magazine, so I mean, what do you do? So I, I went to the blog to see if she'd written anything there, and there was nothing on there. But there, was a, there were two posts on singleness. I thought, oh, that's a good sign. She's single. I'm single. What can happen in two weeks? Um, uh, and, but the, so I, I, there was a podcast in one of them from John Piper from a series on marriage. Uh, so I watched it, and, and it was just all about singleness, biblical theology of singleness. And I was just convicted again. Now, as a teenager, I'd known all the passages about singleness, and I'd seen it as a good thing. But since then, I'd thought, well, it's not good for man to be alone. That means me, so I should be married. Um, not realizing it's about companionship, not about marriage as such. Now, for Adam, that was the solution that God gave him. Uh, so I, I watched this and was convicted. I went upstairs and prayed and said, Jesus, if you're willing, if you want me to be, I can be single for the rest of my life for your sake. But I'm not just going to choose it. You're going to have to make it very clear to me. Uh, and then I went back downstairs. and It was still morning, so I did my devotions. Opened to that passage. I've been going through Matthew for about seven months by that point, kind of three or four verses a day, copying it out, writing a response. And I opened for the passage that day, and it was Matthew 19. The disciples saying, in that case, is it for better, better for a man not to get married? And Jesus said, some are born that way, some are made that way by others, and others choose that for the sake of the kingdom. If anyone can accept this, let him accept it. And I thought... I've just accepted it. I've just said I can accept it. And he's saying, well, it's up to you. So I thought, yes, I do want it. I do want to be single for the rest of my life for the kingdom. I want to see Jesus come back in this generation. And I want to give everything I am for that purpose. I want to be a friend of the bridegroom. I want to present the bride bride to her husband, spotless. And I I want to give everything I am without any distractions, just going that way. So, So I chose that, and I wrote that as my response. Um, and I still celebrate that as my anniversary. Amazing. James, we are, we are short on time, but if you could, in a, a minute, just maybe itemize a few things that for you have been a, a, bless, a blessing in the last five years. I think the, the, the biggest blessing is learning what it's like to be married to Jesus. And in any marriage, you have a, a kind of, you learn about all sorts of different things. Kind of the first few years, you're just kind of really getting to know each other, really. Um, but um, in, I'm finding still, he's, he's wooing my heart. He's drawing me back. And, and it, 
Paul said, an unmarried person is, is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he may please the Lord, and his interests are not divided. Well, that's the journey, and I'm learning how to be undivided in my interests, and he, he's just drawing me closer, and I'm learning that. So it's, it's a good thing. It's, not, it's a hard thing. I mean, I'm learning how to give myself to him, but it's, it's a wonderful thing. And, and the, the intimacy, just at, at any time, he can just surprise you with his closeness um, and, and with new things that about his character. It's just wonderful. So that's the primary thing. And all, all the other things that, that you lot said on the video are, are all true. Um, but for me, it's, it's, it's him, and I want to, I want to learn, learn more about him. I want to know him more. And, and that, that's the most glorious thing about it. Thank you so much, James. Do you want to just take a seat over there? And that's uh, brilliant. Michelle, Michelle from New Life. So Michelle is from uh, New Life Church. I first got to know Michelle because, you know those people that were nominated to run part of the uh, Olympic torch? They were nominated to run a part of it because they were so amazing. She's one of them. Um, Yeah, she's very, very amazing. Uh, Lives in Kentish Town. And um, her her story, her journey is very, very different from James, which I think is wonderful because I want to just give uh, uh, the most um, spectrum-to-spectrum picture that we can. So Michelle, tell us a little bit about your journey to this point okay um when i was younger i probably i assumed i well i know that i assumed i assumed that i would end up being married with children and now i'm 49 i think the children probably is a bit late for those (laughs) but um you know i still might get married maybe but i may not what did you say to me on the phone um, the other day? You said, if I met Mr. Wright this week, I'd be... Married in a week. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't turn him down. But um, I, 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 wouldn't, I don't want to waste my time with the wrong relationship. So I'd rather be... I'm so happy, I don't want somebody to mess my life up. <laughs> Actually... And uh, the people that I care about most, I wouldn't, if they didn't like them, I wouldn't either. So some little kids in Kentish Town that don't have mums and dads, actually, that the granny brings them up. And so they're kind of like my surrogate kids. So if the man didn't get on with them, then he'd have to go too. <laughs> yeah. So anyway. Tell us, tell us a bit about just the way that you, you're able to run your race for Jesus without distraction, some of the things that God has done and opened up for you as, as an unmarried Christian? Okay. Um, well, um, I've had a lot of time um, and a lot of money, really, because I work full time and um, there's only me and my rabbit, <laughs> Billy Bunny, uh, that the children like. And so uh, once he's had his carrots, you know, the rest of the money's free. So I've, I've, um, I was brought up with, with brilliant parents and they loved to bless us with trips and outings and, you know, my mum was always like, oh, oh, should we do this? Wouldn't it be fun? So they just always wanted to bless us and mum would head off and do extra shifts and, you know, dad carried on providing as well. And uh, we'd go off all over the place doing fun camping trips and trips abroad. So uh, when I came to live in Kentish Town, I got friendly with lots of local children and single parent families who hadn't got anything. Um, they, there was a sort of dreariness to many of them. They, did, they couldn't do fun things because there was no money for it. Um, and So I thought, oh, come on. And there was loads of single people in the church. So I said, right, come on, everybody. Let's get the minibus. Uh, And uh, found a driver. And off we went. And we took loads of kids and and single parents all over the place. So we we went on trips to Butlins. And we went to Disneyland. And recently we went around the world. (laughs) Yeah, God provides big money. The more you give him, the more he gives back. Okay, well, uh, um, in the middle of it all, he's, he's bought me several flats and houses and things like that as well. But uh, one of, uh, God said to me one time, I, I'm on the beach, he said, I want you to buy a flat. And I said, um, well, I haven't actually got any money at the moment. So he said, well, go and talk to your pastor and show him your bank statements and he'll get you sorted out with the budget. So I did all that, uh, and embarrassingly as it was. And um, 
Anyway, so I went to an estate agent and said that this is what I can afford for a flat, and, and he laughed and showed me the door. He said, this isn't the right place for you, dear. You know, don't make our, don't make our building look terrible. Please leave. And so it scored me out, and I felt very um, humiliated. And, uh, and then God said to me, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. So I knew I could just go home and he's going to get me a flat. Next week, my friend rang, Mish, found you a flat. And my heart pumped. I knew it's the Holy Spirit. (laughs) It's the flat. And it was. And then a few weeks before it was time to get the flat, God spoke to my pastor, Paul, and said, Michelle needs another 10,000 deposit. And Paul said, do you think you could borrow it from somebody? And I I thought, you know, I don't really want to ask my parents for anything more because they're very generous um, as it is. Anyway, the next week, um, a lady from the church came round with £10,000. She'd had a dream at the same time. (laughs) Paul had had a dream and just independently brought that round. And then recently... I I got a flat for half price. I got a three-bedroom house with a garden for half price, which was less than my little one-bedroom flat that I bought 13 years ago. So I had 36,000 to take various people skiing and things like that and do the whole house up. And God is always doing that. Yeah, one time I wanted to take some children to Disneyland Paris and... um, so I planned it out, so it was going to be at the end of the year, so I got enough weekends to do extra shifts, um, as I'm a nurse, so do extra shifts. And um, God said to me, don't do a shift this weekend. So I said, oh, okay, I'll, I'll leave it to the next one, but I can't leave too many because I do need this this money. And then a cheque arrived, and then the next week he said, no, don't work this weekend either. So, okay, another cheque. It's about five cheques, they all came in. And then I thought, right, I'm going to do a really big trip now to Disneyland, and £5,000 came in as one lump sum. <laughs> so, so if you want to give to God, he will pour it, pour it in, and you can't outgive God, you know. This is an example of just a life poured out for Jesus. This isn't, this isn't like Michelle goes by herself to Disneyland and goes on all the trips, and God, she's taking, she's just constantly pouring herself out for family after family after family after family and she's had the freedom to do that um and god's with her in it and she's happy and fulfilled and fruitful and yet if mr Wright came along by next sunday we'd all be celebrating with you and saying congratulations michelle thank you very much